You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, episode 49 with Dr. Sarah Chips going on over here. Now, the thing we're talking about is attachment and how your attachment style is so connected with your relationship with food and all that stuff. But before I share a little bit more about Sarah and about the episode, you know that even just hearing what this is about, that it is this is totally my thing and that I have tons more thoughts. We sort of scratched the surface in this conversation. So if you're wanting a little bit more or just hearing, wanting to hear a little bit more about my thoughts or my, I guess, opinions on this, be sure to head over to my website and sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is going to come out on Thursday to hear a little bit more about attachments and eating disorders. Oh, love it. Anyways, Dr. Sarah Chips is our beloved vice president here at IADEP New York very, very soon to be president. Woohoo, hooray. She's the founder of two different programs. So one is called Well Williamsburg, which is a group practice. And that's in Williamsburg, guys. So Brooklyn, (laughs) Brooklyn, New York. And the other one is Sanctuary. And that is an IOP zone intensive outpatient for people with a trauma history. So definitely a different program. Really, really awesome. And just a little bit about Sarah specifically. She specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, substance abuse, trauma. She's a regular presenter at conferences. So she talks about all different sorts of things. And something we actually don't talk about in this episode, but I find so fascinating is that Sarah does a lot of work with dissociative disorders. So DID, dissociative identity disorder. So maybe I can grab her for another episode to talk a little bit more about that because that is super fascinating, y'all. Anyways, so we're talking about attachment and relationship with food. There's so, so much to unpack here. This has to do with our initial relationships, how that comes out in our relationship with food. So how we can actually see it. We can see the restriction. We can see the avoidance. We can see the binging. We can see all of that in our relationships with people and in our relationship with food. So sensing the parallels and seeing more patterns, it's going to give us a much better picture for what's going on with our own lives. So let's just jump right in. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me. I'm excited to do this. And I mean, we've been talking about it for a while, so I'm even more excited to actually do this. So thanks again for joining. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Just to introduce the topic that we're talking about, which is also really exciting for me because it's like totally my jam, is understanding attachments, which is such a hot topic now, even if you're not like an analyst, and how it connects with your relationship with food wherever it falls on the continuum of disordered eating or not. So can you just maybe start with your understanding of the connection and the interplay really between attachment and food relationships? Yes. Okay. So when we're born, we really need caregivers, right? They might be our biological parents. They might be other adults who are taking care of us. And part of that primary taking care of us business is eating. 
And so another part of it is getting love. Like we need love. Mm-hmm. A- animals, you can see that Karen's on my lap right now and she is just gazing into my eyes. It's my cat. Just for people who aren't actually seeing you. Yeah. Karen is your cat. <laughs> Karen is my cat. And she does this thing where she like kneads into my arm and she kind of pretends like she's breastfeeding. I bring this up because like this is like leftover from kittenhood. But we as adults, like when we are adult humans, we also still have that connection, right? To mm-hmm. needing uh, caregiving and the needing of caregiving being directly linked to the needing of food. Because when the infant is being held and bottle fed or breastfed or fed in whatever way, they're getting that uh, hit of oxytocin. They're getting uh, the warmth of the body of the parent who's taking care of them. And there is that wiring together of those neurons that are firing together at the same time of being loved and eating, right? So those neurons are always going to be connected throughout our life, right? And so when Karen is on my lap and kind of kneading into my arm, kittens knead into their mother's stomach so that uh, milk comes out faster. Did you know that? that this no, is like that's so cool. Pushing the milk out. And so the love that they feel for the mother is paired with, coupled with the feeding behavior. That's so interesting. Right. And this is just like basic mammalian stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If we're going to boil our experience down to that, which in infancy, it kind of is. I think that we fantasize that we're a lot further away from like being animals than we actually are. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) I would like to think, (laughs) but we like to think that like, we're so special. Right. But so many of the things that, and like, you know, this is maybe kind of Freudian, but I'm not I'm not a Freudian psychologist, but like, it's also just like biological and evolutionary that like we have these drives, we have these basic biological needs as mammals. Oh, see, yeah. somebody else in another room has some food. And so Karen just left off my lap and ran into the kitchen. Isn't that so interesting? So just to clarify, it's not only that, and we'll talk about attachment styles and how that sort of can play into our relationship with food and how we can see that metaphorically speaking, but it's, it's the direct correlation between the closeness of a relationship and the love and support and food. And that becomes intertwined in how we view attachment slash relationships and food. They sort of not are synonymous, but are so, so intertwined. Yeah. I think for the purpose of like us as adults and perhaps people who are um, struggling with eating disorders or figuring out if we have like a funky relationship with food is that whatever our funk with food is will give us direct clues into what's happening in our relationships because there's Mm going to be like some kind of reenactment and it might even seem like indirect or paradoxical, but if you think about it, you can figure it out. Right. Mm -hmm. So I had an eating disorder in college and part of that time in my life, I was very isolated from my friends. I spent a lot of time tripping about food, exercising, studying, just like obsessively doing my work and really blocking out other people. And I get really like 
frustrated with other people a lot, like hangry kind of, but Mm -hmm. it's like on another level because it's like during cave girl brain, like your brain totally is like, I have no room for anything but hunting and gathering, but there's another part of your brain that's like, do not eat food. And so it just be, it's like, it's terrible. It becomes like this really uncomfortable situation for, for the person who's suffering and for everyone else around them. Like you're not wonderful to be around when you're in that state. (laughs) Even if I thought that nobody else knew what was going on, right? Right. You were so good at keeping a secret. (laughs) Yeah. I have like a real poker face. And so what was happening with food, this restriction was also playing out with people. Mm -hmm. I was restricting intake of intimacy and relationships, right? Yeah. Well, so then maybe it might be helpful to go through, you know, a couple of examples or sort of general attachment styles and... A, for an overview to sort of like help people understand what we mean and then how that can play out with food relationships and people relationships. Okay. So I was a heavy restrictor and then my psychologist at the time was so smart because she didn't have any eating disorder knowledge. Like this was like in the nineties, right? Like there was not as much awareness. There wasn't a bunch of treatment facilities to send me to. Like if I was my client today, if my college self was my client, I would be like, you need to go to treatment, right? Yeah. (laughs) But that wasn't really an option. And so she didn't even say anything about the way that I looked or ask me about my food intake or send me to a doctor, which I would, you know, do that differently. I would definitely get the person checked up, but she was like, what's going on with your relationships with people? Because she's very psychoanalytic in nature. And so she was thinking about this. She was like, you need to go out and get some friends. So I go out, I engage in getting friends, which was great. But like, I also was, wasn't ready to let people get so close. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to regulate my experience. And so I was taking people in, in bits Right. And like hanging out with people. And I like started having friends that I spent a lot of time with, but then I would kind of like step back and like, Oh, but I have to, you know, I have to run in the morning. So I have to, I have to leave this party early. I was kind of like going back and forth, this push and pull situation, Mm -hmm. which could be like described as kind of a disorganized attachment style where like, I had like a yearning for people, but I would get close to somebody and then I would push them away in some way. And so at that time too, I was going back and forth with food, right? I would like go out with my friends and go to a taqueria. I was living in San Diego. So there's like really good taquerias and Mm -hmm. uh, eat a burrito. And then I would feel really uncomfortable with that and then compensate the next day. So there was this like, kind of like, and I was eating sometimes until I was using a lot of marijuana at the time too. So I was eating sometimes dissociatively in a substancey way with the weed and then a munchy kind of way and then feeling <laughs> uncomfortably full like thanksgiving full right yeah. and so that was kind of playing out with my friends too because i would spend like a lot of time with them and they had big personalities these people and then i would feel intruded upon by them and mm-hmm. like my boundaries were kind of violated sometimes and then just in like that they wanted to spend more time with me or they wanted me to like not that like there was anything like traumatic that happened, but I would feel like it was just too 
much, like the relationship was too much. And then I would Mm -hmm. push away and kind of restrict that relationship at the same time that I was restricting food. Right. And so that's kind of a disorganized strategy. And these words that I'm using, these are like from attachment theory and they go back to, you know, John Bowlby and you can look up like things that people have found over the years during their attachment studies, if, if you're really interested in that. But, and they come also from something called the strange situation. Have you heard of that? Mary Ainsworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these words, these labels are specifically talking about children and children's attachment styles. Right. And now we've kind of like decided to use these descriptors for adult attachment styles too, because they kind of mirror them. So that's more of a disorganized strategy that like you're approaching somebody and you want attachment, you want intimacy, but then it feels dangerous. And so you're backing away at the same time. Mm -hmm. Again, not that like the labels or the semantics mean too much, but how would that differ from more of like an anxious attachment? People with anxious attachment styles become very dysregulated when uh, their attachment figure, whoever that is, you know, like in adulthood, it's usually somebody that you're dating and there's a lot of information out about, you know, how to be an anxiously attached person and date, which uh, (laughs) I love all the Instagram reels on that. (laughs) Totally. TikTok. I mean... Yeah, I watched my TikTok on Instagram. So Instagram. I was like, wow, you're so cool. You have TikTok. (laughs) No, I'm too old for TikTok. Although I've heard there's some very funny things on it. So yeah, so anxious attachment people tend to do a lot of reaching out and attempting to get their attachment figure engaged sometimes Mm -hmm. in ways that are actually very ineffective and push end up pushing people away. Also people with anxious attachment styles tend to be really attracted to people with avoidant attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's probably because although the literature is like iffy on this, if like your childhood attachment style carries over into adulthood. But my guess is that adults with anxious attachment styles, and again, this is like not my research or I have, I'm just running my mouth. Adults with anxious attachment styles probably had an avoidant parent or at least an apparent, a parent who was not available to them in the way that they needed the parent to be available to them as a child. And so in their dating partners, they're kind of reenacting that relationship. And there's a part of them that thinks that they can master that relationship and that it will be different this time and they will be the special one. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of what sort of like grand gestures or something that might potentially be inappropriate to not lure someone in, but to bring someone close? I think that it's not necessarily inappropriate. I think sometimes it can be ineffective to... Right, that was the word you used, sorry. And like, depending on like the partner and the person that they're pursuing or hoping for, like texting a lot or texting like multiple times, like, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? When the person's not like giving you anything back, right? Mm -hmm. Calling. And this can like, you know, this is like a spectrum, right? So like reaching out more than the other person is putting in, not having like a match in the bids for engagement. 
between the partners. Yeah. So that's sort of like one aspect. And then what happens on the other end of that? Well, that's one aspect of anxious attachment, right? And then if if we've got like a spectrum, right? I think anxious attachment runs the spectrum up to like what we would call like borderline personality disorder strategies. Yeah. Because borderline personality disorder, I am... I am convinced comes from um, attachment trauma, mm-hmm. that it's a trauma response, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so people might do things like I've heard of people, you know, getting so angry with their partners that they've like hit them or tried to like push them out of cars if they like, you know, said that they were going to leave or very demonstrative, sometimes violent and like desperate. Do not leave me. I will die if you leave me, right? Which makes sense for a child because if a primary caregiver leaves a child, like an infant or a young child, they will literally die, right? You are defenseless until you're, you know, like at least five years old. I mean, imagine that a five-year-old could like make breakfast for themselves in some capacity, but like, like poor cereal. Sure. <laughs> poor cereal or I, I mean, we really need to be taken care of until our late teens. Right. Yeah. But if we were to say the, the literal 35 really needed to be taken, <laughs> <laughs> but literally die. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. so that is what that person, the adult with borderline personality disorder is feeling that they will actually die if this person leaves them. Their mm-hmm. nervous system is like going out of control. It's not a choice. Yeah. So it almost sounds like every way that they behave is sort of a desperate attempt to attach to someone and then keep them. Yeah. Because they're very scared. Right. Yeah. And so if that's not their fault, and what they, how they choose to respond to that internal experience is a choice. Yeah. Which leads directly to somebody whose style might be a little bit more avoidant. And that's just more so like holding out their hand and or their arm and saying like, no, I'm good with like this 10 foot pole here. Yes, exactly. So somebody with an avoidant style is going to feel like it's very intrusive. They're going to feel overwhelmed by closeness. I think there's like some myth that like, that's like good in some way or like the better way to be in the world. Um, Like better as compared to an anxious style or better just look, if you look at like music or like culture around like players or like they're the power relationship, right? Yeah. Or like that they can just like, they're independent. They can like take it or leave it and they do them. And there's some kind of like myth about like the independent person in our culture. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that that style actually misses out a lot on like the beauties and the joys of closeness with others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, to a certain extent, what our society and pop culture deems as superior is not necessarily what feels better, but just sort of what we put on a pedestal. Yeah. I, well, case in point is like what we've kind of idealized around body image and body size, at least when I was growing up. And I think this has changed a little bit, but I still think like the thin ideal is very goddess sized. I don't know if that's a word, but it's like revered. We have a lot of bias around people who are 
thin, like we ascribe certain values to them, like that they're smart and they're independent and they're powerful and they're in control, right? Um, Wealth, um, things like that, right? And like people die to get those qualities ascribed to them by other people. Yeah. So this is, I think like, just because culture says that this is like a great way of being, or like that this is valuable doesn't mean that it's a better way to be a human or that you're going to have a better human experience because you are this way. Totally. Yeah. And so, you know, part of the point of this conversation is that we want to shed light on what things actually are so that you don't necessarily have to continue to pursue something that's really an empty promise from whoever is selling it to you. Yes, totally. One thing that I think is really interesting to think about that I'll talk about with my clients is sex and sexual behaviors and kind of physical intimacy behaviors and its relationship to food, right? So if you think Mm -hmm. about infants, when they're eating, they're doing like a lot of suckling, right? And then we kind of reenact that in our adult sex lives. Like there's a lot of suckling, there's licking, there's like, even the way that we, we kiss each other with our open mouths is like, we think about it. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird, right? Like why? Well, if we think about any of it, it's kind of weird. <laughs> any of it is kind of weird, but there's a lot of mouth action. Okay. And mm-hmm. this I think is directly related to breastfeeding. Okay. How so? Because of this experience of being intimate with your primary caregiver, you know, like not always, it's not always breastfeeding, right? It's, it's like eating and being loved at the same time when you're an Mm -hmm. infant. So you're like sucking on something. You're like receiving this nourishment, like this warmth, it's sweet. And you're getting like your belly full at the same time. And there's all this oxytocin, which is another thing that's like really released during like uh, physical romantic intimacy. And this is like a really bonding experience for the infant and child and, and can also be used as a really bonding experience and in sexual intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, just to clarify, we're not saying that there's anything particularly wrong about this. It's just very interesting how it all connects. Oh yeah. I just think it's fascinating. Right. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, like, I think it's something that like we don't think about, but we engage with even in like our semantics of around like, you know, mm-hmm. like, Ooh, like that person's so yummy. Right. Or like I would eat them up and this kind of yeah. like description of people as food, right. Or a snack or what is mm-hmm. Lizzo says, I'm a whole meal. Um, I yeah. love it. Right. It's like, um, describing yourself as something delicious yeah. or another person as something delicious. It's linking, it's coupling intimacy and attachment with food. Again, it's just like a, I think a vestige of. Yeah. So I want to go into, um, like what we can make of this and how, what we can actually do. But before we sort of pivot, I just wanted to put out there that we're sort of putting some ideas together And what's important is potentially to pay attention to what your styles of attachment are potentially with food, with your friends, with romantic partners, and just how you interact with the world in general. So how you take everything in. It's like not necessarily that anything's wrong with it again. It's just sort of being curious about it and seeing how, just how you relate to people. And I think because like, if I circle back to like my own story and my psychologist who was like, didn't say anything about 
my eating disorder behavior or my appearance, but just went right to the relationships. Like she knew she could tell that I was isolated by looking at me. Right. Mm. And the cure was not necessarily to fight with me about food or like prescribe some diet because she said, and I went back and I asked her this later. I was like, why didn't you say anything about my appearance? And she said, I didn't want to be another adult telling you to eat. I figured like you had enough of those in your, in your life. An adult was already paying for you to come see me. And I'm sure that person was trying to get you to eat. Right. So like, that's not going to be effective. And so she kind of went in the back door and she knew that if I got friends and I developed my intimacy, like my intimate relationships, that the eating would improve. And I did, I weight restored in a year Wow! without ever talking about the food. Now I'm not saying that everybody can do this, right. Or like, this is like, this is my particular story and what happened to me at a specific time in like eating disorder treatment history, but I, I am amazed by it. Right. And I do think it's Mm -hmm. meaningful. And so if you're noticing that you are restricting food or you're concerned about that, like maybe also you need to focus on relationships. And sometimes people have like a lot of relationships or a lot of friends and they're restricting, or they have, you know, a lot of friends and they're engaging in whatever eating disorder behavior, but it's like the quality of the friendship and how much you're like sharing of yourself and how much you're inviting people to share with you and really building those like kind of energetic connections with people. Yeah. So can we break that down just for a minute? So say, you know, we're talking about focusing on relationships in terms of healing. Let's just say, we'll start with a person who doesn't really have so many friends and they're not really sure how to find friends, but, you know, boiling it down, it's probably terrifying to put yourself out there. How do you do this? (laughs) Oh my gosh. For me, I had a lot of social anxiety. And I really didn't know what to do with myself. Like all going, I was an only child. So I was like raised around adults all the time. So there's always this like hierarchical relationship. Like I was the child and these were the adults. And I was kind of just like, I would just sit at these like tables of adults who were talking and like be quiet and listen. Right. So I, I was lacking in some social skills from the get-go. I hope that that has gotten better. Um, (laughs) But I would like show up to school and like, not know what to do with myself. Like, what do I put my arms? Like, how do I be with people? And so for me, what felt like the most manageable and like comfortable and realistic thing for me to do was to work. And so I've been working since I was 11. Yeah. I used to like help out at a daycare when I was 11 and I got paid for it. $2 an hour. Help labor. <laughs> but this is a way for me to be around people. So when I showed up at the psychologist's office, I was like 18 and I was just going to school because I was like, I'm just going to go to school. I'm not going to work. And I mean, I worked at like fast food. I worked at clothing stores, like all through high school. But this particular time in my life, I was not working. And so she was like, um, go, you got to like go be with people. So I got an internship. Mm-hmm. And Fox Six News of all places, and then really, yeah, it was like a local affiliate. Whatever, it was really fun. And then I also went and got a job, like at a restaurant, which was like not the greatest place. It's, I mean, typical for an anorexic um, to get a job at a, around yep. food. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was like it was slow, right? Like mm-hmm. it wasn't like I went out and like just like 
dove into a bunch of relationships. I did get some of these friends that I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And I would hang out with them, but I wasn't like revealing a lot of myself to these people. I was mostly like listening to them and allowing them to share with me their lives and like kind of holding back myself for the reasons that, you know, I previously talked about. So I think like, first you have to think like what's reasonable and like Mm -hmm. just baby steps, right? Like, don't think that like, you're going to like go on some meetup group and then like find like your best friends or even join a sorority or fraternity or whatever. And like find a bunch of Insta friends. Have you heard of this term microwave relationships? I have from you, but can you talk about it? I was fascinated when you mentioned it. (laughs) Okay. It's also referred to as intimacy. That's a catchy one. Instimacy, microwave relationship. So these are like fast and furious relationships, which can be like friendships and can be also romantic relationships, but they tend to like spark and burn out fast because Mm -hmm. they're so overwhelming. There's so much sharing. And I think sometimes I've seen this like even in treatment settings, like specifically residential treatment, because all of a sudden you're like, And I mean, I didn't go to residential treatment, but I see my clients like all of a sudden they're in this environment where like everybody's sharing their stories and there's like a lot of encouragement to like be vulnerable. And they make these very fast friends with these people that, and they like, it feels like so new and wonderful to be in connection with people in this way. And then they get out of treatment and the relationship becomes real. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. And so like a lot of microwave relationships and intimacy is like, there's fantasy involved. Mm-hmm. You might not even be aware of it, but like fantasy around like what the relationship means and how close people actually are. So I like to like ask people to slow cook relationships, like go out for a coffee date or like go shopping with a friend or like go to the beach and like feel people out. Like you, you're interviewing friends just as much as they're interviewing you. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think for people like me who are, uh, have social anxiety, it's like, really anxiety provoking to feel like maybe I'll be rejected by these people or maybe they won't like me or maybe I won't have value in the relationship. But like, remember, like you have things to bring to this relationship too. You don't have to spend your time with these people. And so they should be like, like, this has to be like a mutual kind of honoring of, of time. We have so little time on this planet. So one thing can be like, go slow in the actual relationships, but also like set yourself up in situations where you are going to have the least anxiety, right? So for me Mm -hmm. in a workplace setting, there's a role for me and something for me to do. I don't just have to like carry on like chit chat with somebody. If I'm working in like at Banana Republic or whatever, some retail store, there's like racks to straighten and like stuff to put out on the floor. And like, I can keep myself busy if I don't know what to say to somebody. Yeah. So sometimes like having something to do, it can, can help with that. The other thing that has been really helpful for me in my, my later life as someone in their forties who wanted to make friends in their forties in a new city, I found a place where there are people who share my values and interests, which is a kitten rescue. So I volunteer at a kitten rescue. There's a bunch of happens to be a bunch of women volunteering at this kitten rescue who are all, you know, around 
of my same age and uh, all really love kittens. And so I've met a lot of people there that share a value with me, but we also have a common mission, right? And like something mm-hmm. that we're working towards, which is saving kittens. Yeah. So it's something to keep in mind, you know, if somebody doesn't necessarily resonate with all the examples that you're giving, the point is look at what your specific values are and, and how can you find, yeah, interests exactly. And how can you find people who might be similar Right. And it's not even just about the similarity. I want to say like, it's about doing something with other people. There's something about like working towards something. And especially if it's difficult to work towards it, um, because you're investing your time and energy in it, you're doing it because it's meaningful. And so there's Mm -hmm. like a certain camaraderie in working together. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like you said, there's also less pressure interpersonally. Yeah. But there's something about like accomplishing a goal together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, yeah. I, there's something there. That's my next dissertation. <laughs> oh, I love that. I'm going to read it. I don't know if this is something that you can really quite conceptualize with words. And especially in a conversation like this, that is not specific to a person, but say someone is struggling with social anxiety and they do these things, um, you know, they join a group or whatever it is, how can we sort of a take them from going from not vulnerable or not really connecting to connecting, but also making sure that we're not sort of like overdoing it and just sort of like putting everything onto the person. So making that meaningful connection we were talking about, as opposed to something that's more avoidant or overbearing. I think sometimes when like, I guess I don't have, I don't even want to try to give like an exact answer of like what to do, because I think that people put so much pressure on themselves to like do things the right way. Yeah. And I guess I just want to say like, just show up and be open to feeling feelings that come up in relationship with other people and sitting with those feelings and seeing if you can work through them. And that's it. Yeah. Well, not so easy to do, but definitely a simple formula. That, no, that's it. That's all you have to do. And then you're going to be fine. But I do love your answer in that if you struggle with connecting, it's not that follow this manual and four steps, and then you'll make these significant and meaningful relationships. That's not that's not how it works. You have to be you and also lean into your intuition, allow things to happen, which spontaneity might be terrifying, but also not the kind of thing that there's a manual for, which, you know, is a thing in and of itself. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? I'm the clinical director and founder at a couple of spots. One is Well Williamsburg, which is in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And there we treat eating disorders and we treat PTSD and we treat most things except, yeah, most things we will treat there. Um, And it's just outpatient psychotherapy. And the other place I've uh, founded and direct is called Sanctuary. And Sanctuary is, we do do outpatient uh, sessions there specifically for PTSD and complex PTSD and dissociative disorders, but we primarily have uh, an intensive outpatient program for complex PTSD and dissociative disorders. So those are my two spots. That's where you can find me. That's awesome. And people can email me if they have any questions. I'm at Dr. Sarah Chips 
at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I so appreciate this conversation. Yeah, it was so fun to talk to you. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.